by looking at a passage at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 31. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, they're stuck right in the back of the pews there. There's an index at the front to help you find the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy and <coughs> chapter 31. Allow me to set the stage. Deuteronomy, which is a very strange word, comes from two words slammed together, which mean the second law. Okay? And what it is effectively is it's Moses' final sermons to the people of Israel, which he's led for the last 40 years. And so he's about to hang up uh, you know, hang up his, his role. He's about to retire. Um, he's about to uh, appoint a successor. But bigger than that, this isn't just a change in leadership. This is a transition from 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to stepping into the land that has been promised Israel. 40 years of God miraculously providing with manna and leading with a pillar of fire and smoke into settling into a land where there's, where there's farming to provide, where things are established, um, <clears throat> where eventually the temple will be built. Um, all of these things are ahead, and it's also a generational transition. Over the course of this 40 years, those who um, did not believe in God's promises and refused to enter into the land of fear have been slowly dying off in the wilderness. And so this is a generation who, at the time of the Exodus narrative, when they were delivered from Egypt, were all under the age of 12, and now they are stepping into the promises that were made for their parents, and so it's a massive time of transition. And to be really frank, the message for this morning is utterly simple. Uh, it's basically just, I'm just going to set a nail, and then I'm just going to hammer it until it's all the way into our hearts this morning. Because I want you to see that in times of transition, there's really only one thing you need to remember. There's one place where good leaders always exhort their people in times of transition. There's one thing God wants you to know about himself. Because the truth is, change is inevitable and constant. But God is faithful and consistent. Okay? And so... Just like, you know, the instructions on the fire extinguisher. They're always the same. Okay? And just like those same instructions, even if you're not experiencing difficulty in transition right now, you will. So you might as well read the instructions. You might as well get prepared. You might as well lodge in your heart, as, the, as Psalm 119 says, God's word now. Okay? So... Listen to what Moses says to the people and listen to what God through his word says to us this morning, chapter 31, verse 1. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord, your God himself, will go over before you. He will destroy the nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over as your head as the Lord has spoken. 
And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and to Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Let's pray. God, change is inevitable, but it's also difficult. And it doesn't matter if we're the type who likes new things and is excited by them. There's a major difference between choosing change and when change is imposed upon us. It unsettles us. It makes us afraid. It makes us feel like we don't know what's coming. And so I pray today and in the weeks that come, Lord, that you would instruct us in your word so that we can walk in your ways and better know and experience your good character. And I pray specifically for this transition for myself and for this church. As Javon exhorted us last week, Lord, we know that the workers change, but the work continues because you are behind it, because you are the one who builds the house, because you are the one who protects the city, because you are the one who has commanded and has promised and has empowered and is present. So we pray that you'd help us to receive this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can guess where I'm going, right? I mean, this passage is so redundant, it really only says one thing. Moses only has one thing to say, and basically it's the fact that what you have accomplished so far has happened because God is with you. And as there's this transition now, as we move from Moses to Joshua, from wilderness to promised land, God will be with you. He exhorts them to obey the commands they have been given because God will be with them. He encourages them to be bold, to be courageous, to not be afraid, to not tremble, to do what is set before them because God will be with them. In fact, maybe you noticed, because it's repeated at other places in the scripture, the promise that God makes, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when we're talking about personal transition, when we're talking about relational transition, isn't that the hardest part? Whether we should feel this way or not, we always feel abandoned in transition. We feel left behind. We feel left alone, okay? We can experience this in all sorts of aspects of life. Many of us have experienced at the family level. Right? The absence when a family member gets out of Dodge and leaves is massive. But we also experience it in our place of work. And have you noticed lately, I don't remember a time where so many people have been in motion at the same time. I can't wait to see the statistics from these five years, from 2020 to 2025. I think it's going to be unprecedented How many people have changed jobs, changed careers, changed places, moved to other places, left one church and joined another church? It reminds me of those hundred-in-one game boards. You know what I'm talking about? 
where there's one game board and a bunch of different pieces and maybe you flip over the board and it's Chinese checkers and you flip over this one and it's chess. It feels like all of the pieces are being set up for a new game and none of us knows what game we're playing yet, right? Transition. And it cannot be stated how significant this transition is here in a way that completely eclipses what we're experiencing as a church, okay? I'm no Moses, and the 12 years here in this church is not the 40 years that Israel has gone through. Moses has been committed to this calling since he was 40 years old, and although he showed up too early, and you can read about this in the early pages of Exodus, and messed everything up, God's plan for Moses didn't change. So 40 years later, he receives the call, the burning bush. He steps in. He becomes the spokesperson for the living God, not just a preacher of his word. He, he writes scripture. His sermons here are word for us today, not just for them. The transition from wilderness, most of these kids grew up wandering as nomads in the desert, and they're going to have to figure out how to be soldiers, how to be farmers, how to settle in, okay, and then you have this transition to Joshua. And, and actually, if you read carefully through the story so far, Joshua is a known entity. He's led the people of Israel in battle while Moses supported via prayer at a distance. He's been faithful and present, serving in the tabernacle, hearing the word of the Lord, Lord spoken. He's one of the two spies who went into the land and came back and said, hey, God is capable of delivering us this land when the other ten said, no, 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 there's giants there, it's difficult, we should just go back to Egypt. So he has a good track record, but let's be clear, he is no Moses. Joshua has never done a miracle. Joshua uh, was not the deliverer that started the identity of the people of God. He was not the beginning, he was something new, okay? And let's point out, too, that this was a significant transition for Joshua, I know that this is the case because Moses tells him here to be strong and be courageous, and then God tells him personally, two weeks later, be strong and be courageous, okay? It is, in, uh, it is a big deal for Joshua to step into this role, and let's recognize that our, our scriptures alone cover thousands of years of history, telling the same you know, complex story of God's plan for the people of Israel, for bringing the Messiah and Jesus Christ, for sending out the church, reaching beyond our own time all the way forward until Jesus comes back. And that means that there is a whole lot of transition, a whole lot of change, okay? And so here, as Moses tries to settle a people who are fearful as he tries to exhort them into courage, as he tries to get them to not do what their parents had done. Maybe that's one of the transitions that's the hardest, is not to repeat history. Okay. He really only has one message. And so let's just look at two versions of it here in verse 6, and then again in verse 8. So first, he says to the people, verse 6, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And then just sentences later, speaking to Joshua in verse 8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not be, fear, do not be afraid or be dismayed. Okay. 
Moses doesn't go, all right, if this is going to go right, I have 10 things I want you to think about. He doesn't say, I've written you a manual for transition to prepare you for what's coming. He doesn't take the time to say, all right, so, uh, you know, what he does here is so simple. He basically says, second verse, same as the first. What we stood on yesterday, what you saw happen yesterday, is the same thing that you will see tomorrow, because in the equation of your life, there is a constant, a consistent, not a variable, something that does not change, which is that God is faithful to his people, keeps his promises, is present in the work, not absent. And that's it. That's what he wants him to know. Moses will lead them for two reasons. One, because he screwed up, right? He's not entering into the promised land because he did not rightly represent the Lord. And we're going to look at a lot of transitions in the Bible today, and a lot of them are filled with failure. And sometimes those ones are even harder. Even though you know you're moving to hopefully something better, the failure is, you know, another variable here. But also, because he's mortal. I mean, even at 120 years, we're thinking, wow, how is this guy still walking? You know? And he says so. He's like, I can't even come out and go in anymore. We, we almost get the feeling that to deliver this sermon, he was carried to the lectern, right? Set on the stage so he could speak to the crowds. <clears throat> and yet, his go-to, his truth, is eternal. Again, it's a constant, undying, unchanging. And what I want to point out to you this morning is that when God speaks to people in times of change, this is the only thing he wants them to know. I'll give you some illustrations. So God comes to a man named Abraham, and sometimes we refer to him as the father of the faith. He's clearly the beginning of the people of Israel. God comes And over 25 years, he proves to Abraham that he's a a God who keeps his promises, that is capable of protecting him, that doesn't need his help to do his will. Uh, He teaches him all these lessons, and then bam, he's given a son named Isaac. And we don't really talk about Isaac in a proactive way very often, just a passive way. We think of Isaac the sacrifice, not Isaac the follower of God. And actually, Genesis doesn't really give us a lot of activity of his life. But there is a common thread there. Not that Isaac was like Abraham, although he was in the fact that he also lied and said his wife was merely his sister to save his own skin. But more significantly is the statement that God makes to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. This is right after the death of Abraham. So here Isaac is going, What does life mean now? What about God's promises that are yet unfulfilled? The only land my father ever bought was a burial ground. And yet he's promised us this land and this descendants. And so here, God speaks to Isaac in chapter 26. And notice what he says in verse 3. He says, sojourn in this land and I will be with you. And I will bless you, for to you and your offspring I will give this land, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. What does he say? He says, I will be with you. After Isaac comes Jacob. And look at what it says about Jacob in chapter 28. 
So again, a transition, and this one's a little awkward. Because God has chosen Jacob, Isaac has not. Isaac's really fond of Jacob's older brother Esau. He wants to give him the blessing and the promises. God is not on board with that, and neither is his wife. But through deception, they steal the blessing from a blind old man, and now Jacob is in the wilderness on the run for his life, wondering if he just blew up not just his plans, but God's. And notice what God says to Jacob here in chapter 28. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, this is such good news because Jacob is a mess and he won't really be Israel from which the nation gets his name until he learns a lot of lessons and does a whole lot of repenting. But God's plan is not at risk because God is present and committed. So we can move forward to the book of Deuteronomy, but again, just look at this transition from another angle. Turn forward just a few pages to the first chapter of Joshua. Here, Moses is dead. Here, Joshua is uh, about to send spies into the land again. Try and tell the same story, but get it right this time. And so he prepares to do this. And notice what it says in verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Okay. I know you're getting the point, but I want to keep going. So Joshua gets into the land and Israel scores about a C- minus on the job that they've been given to do. Okay. And because of that, we get this whole parenthetical period of the judges, which is a total mess. And actually, it's not just a constant mess, it's a downward spiral of sin and unfaithfulness until even the heroes that God can find to deliver his people are people like Samson. That's the best available, right? But God is so committed to the, clan, uh, to the, to the plan that he raises up just a little boy named Samuel who's going to be a spokesperson. And we have this fresh start again. Samuel steps in, and in a day it tells us in the book of Samuel where the word of the Lord was rare. Where people wondered, does God have anything to say to us? Has he abandoned his people? And he raises up Samuel, and he speaks, and more importantly, he appoints a couple of kings. But listen to what Samuel says to the people when he retires. And let me point out to you that he had a succession plan as well. He was a committed father, but a bad one. And so his sons were not good. They took advantage of the people, and the people called him out on it. And they said, give us a king. And so here he speaks to them in chapter 12. Okay. And I want you to notice what he says here. In chapter 12, verse 22. So here he's, again, giving his retirement speech. And this is what he says. He says, uh, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And then I want to just add this, because it reflects my heart as well. Look what he says about his role. As he steps into retirement, there's a sense where his job isn't done. Notice what he says in verse 30, uh, 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. He's going to take a step back. 
He's going to appoint a king. He's no longer going to be a judge over Israel, but that doesn't mean that his calling or his commitment to these people that he's led his entire life since he was 12 years old is over. He says, woe to me if I do not pray for you. And I have to admit, that's something that is going to be true in this next season that you can count on is the fact that no matter the distance, my heart and to some degree my eyes are here. My thoughts are here. My prayers are here. But the only reason why that matters is because the one I pray to is here. Samuel knows that too. Samuel appoints Saul because that's the king that Israel is after and God has to teach them a geopolitical lesson that the kings of this earth aren't necessarily qualified for the kingdom of heaven. And so instead God raises up David, a man after his own heart, and David is the icon of faithful leadership. Not perfect by any means, but the standard of which every king following David is compared to. Good kings, like David, obeyed the Lord. Bad kings, unlike David, disobeyed the Lord. This becomes the paradigm. And so you can imagine that when we move from David to his son Solomon, that transition is difficult. And so notice, in the book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, what David tells his son Solomon, who, by the way, is not popular as king. There was a candidate who had won the day, won the crowds, but David and Bathsheba and the Lord and Samuel appointed Solomon. So he's got a hard job, okay? It's like finding out that the celebrated candidate who's stepping into president, there was some sort of technicality, and it's actually going to be the other guy three months in. That's what Solomon is facing, not to mention being David's son, okay? But notice what it says here in First Chronicles, as David speaks to Solomon and gives him advice about his upcoming role, First Chronicles chapter 28. Notice what it says in verse 20. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. That adds a layer. I mean, he, he is literally quoting here Moses' words to Joshua. Do you see that? He will not leave you nor forsake you. That's a Moses quote, okay? But notice also he says, um, again, look there. Here's what I wanted. Sorry. Look again at verse 20 and notice he says, for the Lord God, even my God is with you. And this is another thing, it's, it's only implied, but it needs to be drawn out that the God of Moses is the God of Joshua, that the God of David is the God of Solomon, that the God of Abraham becomes the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as we still identify him today. Okay. And so the God who back in Deuteronomy has led Israel faithfully through the wilderness so that Moses makes the profound claim that in 40 years their clothes haven't worn out, their shoes haven't gotten holes, they've eaten every day and lived a nourishing life because God is that present. And it's the same God that will go with them into the land. Okay. Now again, 
Some of these successions, all of them have evidences of human limitations, unfaithfulness, and even failure in sin. But what about the exile? Because what happens here is David is faithful, Solomon not so much, and then after that, everything kind of goes to hell. And so like the time of Judges, there's this downward spiral where kings get less and less. And there's a few revivals along the way, a few good kings, four out of the 30 that serve over the next handful of hundred years. And God faithfully sends prophets to warn them to turn back, to come back, to follow them, or else he lays out what's going to happen and eventually he brings it about and Israel finds themselves booted from the land under the thumb of an awful and violent idolatrous people known as Babylon and they're sitting in Babylon going what now and again it's not just the question uh, well let's let's put it in the context of those times how did the ancient world think about warfare warfare was evidence of whose God was stronger now the word tells us that Babylon is not winning the war because of Babylon's gods but because God is going to use God of Israel is going to use Babylon to judge his people. He's the one who's in control. But every conversation a Jew had with their new neighbors in Babylon would be a taunting conversation, like their team just lost the Super Bowl. Every day they're being reminded, where is your God? The one you say is so great and sovereign over the nations, clearly our gods are better. And then you add to that their own personal judgment and failure. Is God done with his people? Has he finally walked away? And so listen here to the words of Isaiah the prophet for a people in this time in Isaiah 41. What does he feel the people in exile need to know? Look at verse 8. He says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, why? For I am with you. Even in the midst of failure, of relocation, of incredible persecution, of becoming again slaves, because that's what Babylon is. It's a reversal of the Exodus story. And God is still here, still present, still committed. This is homework, but read the opening chapters of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is by the river Chabar in Babylon, and he sees the throne of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of things that we don't understand about that because the imagery is intense. We got angels with multiple wings and even more eyes and wheels within wheels moving in multiple directions. But the thing that is staggering to Ezekiel that you may not catch is that this isn't back at the temple in Jerusalem. God is enthroned by the river Chabar here in Babylon. That's the message Ezekiel's people need in the days of exile. And I want you to understand that transition is not just an Old Testament thing. And the lesson is the same in the New Testament. So take Jesus in the Great Commission. We won't turn there in Matthew 28 because I know many of you know it very well and I know it well enough to quote. But Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. And why is he giving this command? Because Jesus is leaving. 
Moments after this, he ascends into heaven and still hasn't returned in the flesh, although he has promised to do so. And so what does he say? He says, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, and then what does he say? And lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Transition. Jesus from earth to heaven, and yet he is present, and he is working, and so Luke gets it right when he opens the book of Acts and says, Theophilus, earlier in the book of Luke, I wrote you about the things Jesus began to do and teach. Why does he say that? Because he now is going to tell them about how Jesus continues to do and teach through his church because he is present and working. Okay. Let's just look at one last example. One that's a transition that's a little bit more difficult, a little bit more painful. Let's talk about the final words of the Apostle Paul. And remember who Apostle Paul is. He is the greatest persecutor of the Christian church who encounters the living Jesus and becomes its greatest proponent. He's a church planter who carries the message of Jesus all over the Roman Empire, planting churches as he goes, and then staying in contact with them via letters to disciple them and grow them and prepare them for the inevitable transition, which is that he's not always going to be there. In fact, in writing to Timothy, where he writes his last words, he's taking one of his own disciples, somebody he refers to as a child in the Lord, somebody he led to faith, someone who he later says, he's the only one that has my heart, right? He has formed him into a Paul-like heart for the church. And he's writing him this last letter, and he's sitting in prison, which is not the first time, but he knows it's the last. He knows that just in a matter of days, maybe at most a matter of weeks, he's going to stand before Caesar Nero, and there is no way out. Of beheading. And so the letter is full of his final thoughts reflecting on his own life. I've fought the good fight. I've run the race with endurance. It's full of these things. Okay. Timothy, do the things that God is calling you to do. Preach the word in season and out of season. It's full of exhortations, much like Deuteronomy. It's, it's Paul's swan song, his final instructions. But I want you to notice how he closes this letter, the literal last known written words of the Apostle Paul. And what are they in 2 Timothy? He says here to Timothy, the Lord be with you. And I want you to remember those words are not a wish. He doesn't say, I hope the Lord will be with you. He says, the Lord be with you. That's the language of benediction. When we close our services here, we choose from phrases like this, benedictions, they're not just a reminder of God's word, they're an enactment of God's word. Even saying, may the Lord be with you, doesn't convey the concept of benediction. He is speaking into existence what he knows is true because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul will not be with Timothy ever again, nor the church in Rome, or Colossae, or Ephesus or all of the other people, Phoebe or Titus, all of these people that he had invested in his life, that time is up. But the God who sent Paul, the God who empowered Paul, the God who worked through Paul, the God who uh, Paul proclaimed, he will be with them. Are you getting it? Let's just draw out a few things. How does Paul know? How did David know? 
How can Moses proclaim this in confidence? How can Samuel say to the people, even though they've made a really bad decision and are going to pay for it in the form of King Saul, how can he say the Lord will be with you? Because of what David said, as he was with me. This is not just a promise. It's a proven promise. And the truth is, our church has already experienced significant transition. I've had lots of opportunities to reflect on the last 12 years over the last month. And I've thought of all the people who came here and left, but did not leave this church unchanged. To put it in God, big picture terms, people who God sent here to do things for this church, for this body, and although they are gone, what God accomplished is not and continues. I thought of Riley Taylor, who planted this church with me. And to be honest, he's the only reason anybody came in the beginning. I didn't know anyone in Seattle. I didn't know any neighbors here. And I'm not really the outgoing type. And Riley just lived his life saying, hey, come, come, come. I think of Alan, Alan Greenberg. This 72-year-old Messianic Jew with dreadlocks down his back who was the oldest member of our church, the oldest deacon of our church, and brought a level of outward focus on loving our neighbors, on hospitality. When he died of heart failure in his bed, living with a bunch of young men right here on Capitol Hill, I was invited to do the memorial. And we had to do it in another church because this one wasn't big enough. And half the audience had flown in from Portland, from Texas, from New York City, from Connecticut, because of the impact this man had on this life. But if you want to know if you've been received here and never knew Alan and felt welcomed right off the bat, that's what God did in Alan for this church. There's my buddy James Rempt, who was my first associate pastor here and my first part-time hire, who stepped in. And what he said to our leaders at the, that time is something that I now experience firsthand. He said, we all need to recognize that God works in seasons. And whether we're going to be here forever or not, God has a work for us to do now, and then in a new season, he'll work another way. And there's so many others. And Lord willing, there will be so many others. But there is something constant and continuous in the midst of the change. And I'll tell you this. I have seen God work and move and do things that literally, I'm telling you honestly, people told us were impossible. Do you know how many people have attempted to see worshiping communities established in this little neighborhood over the last 40 years? Do you know how many I've met who were, past tense, a part of a church plant on Capitol Hill? Do you recognize how strange it is to be a group of middle-class people in a small church that own property in the most expensive neighborhood in one of the most expensive cities in the country? Can you think of all the people here who met Jesus in this space and in this community? Now, I'm so grateful for the part that I've played in that. And I want to reiterate again, it was only a part. 
some friends of mine who came to this church for a long time that attended another church. They'd come to our evening services and things like that. They said something that I heard literally all the time, and I never took offense of it. Justin, first we came here for your teaching, but we stayed because the church was so loving. Those of you who know me best, and especially those of you who know me longest, knows that doesn't come from me. It was something God sent graciously in the lives and hearts and abilities and compassion of other people, and because of that, I'm a better pastor. But more importantly, it's evidence that God is at work here. It's represented in this building that was built in 1904. In this Tuesday, the German congregation who we purchased this building from and shared with the last five years of their life is going to gather one last time. They sold us this building in 2020 in the midst of the chop and in the midst of COVID. It was kind of a forced retirement for them as a congregation, which was inevitable, but the timeline was sped right and they didn't actually get to have a final service. And so I'm so excited this week on an afternoon, another German congregational pastor is flying in to lead them in one last service. But I'm also excited for them to realize that in handing off this building, the work of God continues here on Capitol Hill. And it's very different. Very few of you sprechen Sie Deutsch. Okay. And our neighborhood has changed significantly since they started here. But God cares about Capitol Hill. And I believe he sent me here because he cares about Capitol Hill. And I believe he sent you here because he cares about Capitol Hill. And we have so many stories that are just like the Apostle Paul, where their plans and ambitions and their reasons for being here were very different. And yet God sought them, found them, made them part of our family. And there's a work here for you to do. David warned Solomon. He says, obey commandments of the Lord. Moses tells Joshua and the people, continue the work that God has began. He says, Joshua, you're going to lead the people into God's promises, but he's not going to do it alone. There's an image in Revelation in the opening chapters where John sees this incredible, transcendent, almost incomprehensible Jesus. It's just opening in chapter one, but one of the things it says is that Jesus is walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. And you're like, great. I, I, I imagine seeing this on Netflix, but what does it mean for me? And you turn the chapter and you discover that the seven lampstands are these seven churches in diverse places in Turkey. And not all of them are in good places. One particular, he says, if you do not repent, I'm pulling the lampstand. But more significantly for us, Jesus is right there in the midst, like a Sting music video. That's what it always makes me think of. Have you ever seen the video for Wrapped Around Your Fingers where Sting is dancing around with all the candles? Sorry. (laughs) The point is that God has plans for us, for you, for this church, for our neighborhood, for our world. And so what you need to do, and I don't know how this transition has been. I know for some of you it felt inevitable. That's how it felt for me. I don't really know what to do with that. It's it's a weird thing to think. I know for others, it's tied to significant things God did in your own life. Some of you began your walk with Jesus very close 
to meeting me and my family in this church. I know that. So I know there are all sorts of things involved in this transition, but I want to put it simply and memorably. What we do when things change around us is look up. Because when we look up, we see the thing that doesn't change. The one who is faithful even when we're faithless. The alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. The one who opens doors that no man can shut and the one who shuts doors that no man can open. The one who, as we saw in the psalm this morning, has written all of the things that you will go through, even the hard ones in his book. The one who is so present that when you cry, he's right there to catch the tears. The one who gave a commandment not just to the apostles to go into all the world and make disciples, but in teaching them to observe all they commanded created a cyclical cycle of disciples who make disciples. And so if you're grateful that God in the last 12 years has equipped you, he has, for a new season, to step into a new work, to enter into a new land. God is with you. Just as he has proven the last 12 years. So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Let's pray. God, it's weird as human beings to experience something that can come with sadness, that can come with confusion, and definitely comes with newness, and yet be at rest. It's a weird thing to think that when all things are shifting around us, that there's the possibility of stability and of peace. It's strange sometimes when we read the words of Christians who wrote our scripture like Paul, who says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I know how to have much, and I know how to have little. But again, the reason that this is the case is because your good, your power, and your presence are static in our life. When all things change, you remain, the, you remain the same. You're as committed to your plan and to your people as you have been. And that means that we can take the evidence of the work you did yesterday and turn it into confidence of the work you'll do tomorrow. And so I pray, Lord, that you, just as we've tried to do through repetition this morning, would just drill this deeply in our hearts. May we be able to say, in all the turmoil and all the transition, I don't know this, I don't know that, I have no clue about this other thing, but this I do know, the Lord is with us. We just pray that you would do that work in Jesus' name. The one who promised that he would be with us. The one who came to be with us so that we might eternally be with him. The one who cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And experience that God-forsakenness so that we would never have to. 
so that there was a way that even our sins would not separate us from the God who loves us so much that while we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. Solidify our hearts on that firm foundation. In Jesus' name, amen.